my name is this on okay good morning um, I, I guess we'll start this and this is going to be a very interactive session just you get 10 minutes of rest and then uh, everything else is going to be in 10 minute rounds so we want you to be on your toes and we have timers <laughs> <laughs> so Okay, so I, I'm Susan Barger. I am the head of Connecting to Collections Care. So if, if you've taken a webinar, you hear my cheery voice at the beginning. Um, and uh, if you haven't participated in Connecting to Collections Care, do. It's free. Most of it's free. We have courses occasionally that cost a little bit of money, <laughs> but um, we have over 150 recorded webinars that are free that you can listen to. We have a forum where if you have a problem with collections care, you can ask, and conservators will answer them, and I'm behind them going, this is a good person to talk to if you're stuck. So you get lots of quality information. You can rely on us, and uh, so that's that. I'm gonna be the session chair, and I'm gonna turn this over to Samantha and to Laura Hemer to um, introduce themselves and then we'll start. Hi, I'm Samantha Forsco. I'm the Preservation Specialist at the Conservation Center for Art and Historic Artifacts. Um, in that position, I work really uh, a lot one-on-one -on -one with institutions to do just this, what we're talking about today, overcoming barriers to um, collections care. So I work mostly with little tiny institutions um, all over the country. So. A lot of people are saying, okay, that's a great recommendation, but what do you do if you have uh, two staff members or no staff members or all volunteers? Um, so I'm definitely used to kind of being creative and working around that and hoping to bring that to the session today. Um, previous to my position at CCHA, which is here in Philadelphia, hopefully some of you got to visit it uh, over the course of this, this session. Um, previous to that, I was in Los Angeles at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, and then I worked um, at the Regional Arts and Culture Council in Portland, Oregon, with their uh, public art collection. So kind of a variety of, of things. Um, and Laura. Great. <laughs> um, good morning. My name is Laura Hemer. I am the curator and program director at the Wharton Escherich Museum, uh, which is a very unique building. It's the home and studio of the artist Wharton Escherich. Um, he built this building from the ground up and filled it with his creative, sculptural, imaginative works. Um, so I am dealing with a collection that's pretty much all in place, and then since this was the home of someone, all of their belongings are tucked everywhere you could possibly imagine. Um, so I have spent nine years um, being very creative and learning a lot along the way of dealing with collections and the standards that you want to have in less than ideal um, situations. One of the first things I do want to mention today, um, I want to take this moment to just disarm you. Um, most of you are probably in a similar situation where you know what the ideal is. You went through all of the classes in school and you learned the proper standards, um, and then you get into an environment where sometimes it's almost impossible to have the ideal. Um, so 
that's okay. Um, what we want you to get out of this session today is the realization that it's okay to work with what you've got. As long as you're doing your best in your situation, working with the tools that you have available to you, you're already miles ahead um, and you're moving in the right direction. So take that as permission to be okay with where you are, um, but look forward to moving forward with what you've got. Um, and this is something I talk a lot about with institutions. You're you're not the Smithsonian, right? So like you don't hold yourself to the same standards as the Smithsonian. So I often am telling institutions, forget the best. We're not the best practice. We're not doing best practice. Like it's not that's not real. So what is what are sort of good and better steps? So I like to think of this as kind of um, giving yourself benchmarks and. Um, you know, you're always sort of moving up this ladder. And even if you're just taking that first step, you're getting started, you have stepped onto your, your ladder and that is great. And that is something to be celebrated. And um, we should we should recognize that. So instead of thinking about best, that the very, very top of the ladder, the Smithsonian, the Met, where you have just rolling in money, right? Um, so let's think about it in, in the, the steps instead. You can be, you're sort of getting started. You've made a step in that direction. You're, you're on the ladder. You have sort of the minimum level of care necessary for responsible stewardship. And that might mean you are just like thinking about it. And, and doing it, uh, that that might be where that is. The next one will be good, right? Taking actions that are above the getting started phase. Still room to improvement. There's room to improvement in all these steps, uh, secrets out. Um, and then better might be, instead of best, right? Better, optimal stewardship at your current situation. So that might be the point we're at. We're not at best and that's fine. We're at better and that is better than best in a lot of ways. So so that's where we wanted to kind of come today. Okay, so um, we have our timers. We're gonna have, these are the topics we're gonna cover, 10 minutes each. We have a few points. We want you to respond with a few points and we're gonna make a list. My first advice to every small museum is that you get big sheets of paper you make a list about what you need to do, you cross off things when you have them done, and when you reach certain milestones, you have a party. <laughs> um, it's really important because I, I know when you're running a small museum, you have everything going on, you're doing everything, you have the volunteers coming in, you maybe have staff problems, there's a leak in the bathroom, you, um, and if you don't keep a list of of what you need to do, it's hard to keep on track, but also in the flurry of everything that you have to do, if you don't have a list, you think you just think, I'm never getting anywhere. But the list will tell you that you are. <laughs> so do that, that's my big piece of advice, so. Do you wanna go over and do the list now? Yeah, or I'll, okay. I'll, I'll begin the list. Well, if you wanna take one of these mics, Lauren, I can share one. <laughs> We're being recorded, so we have to like talk into the mic. So sorry if we're like very awkward about <laughs> the mic situation. I'll pass it to you if you need it. Okay. <laughs> okay. So we're gonna go through each of these. We're going to kind of just kind of rapid fire the things that we want to consider in each of these topics, and then we want you guys to rapid fire the things that you should do in these topics. Or if you have questions about 
what, you know, how do I move forward mm -hmm. in, in any of these areas? And like I said, we, that's a lot of topics up there, so we're this is going to be fast. It's early morning, Perfect last first day of the thing. conference. It's <laughs> great. Everybody, yeah. Um, okay. Should we set a timer? Are we ready? We're ready. Okay. Housing and enclosures is the first. This is my favorite topic. I love storage boxes. <laughs> All right. We're going. So the first thing we want to do here, put things in a box. Any box will do. Uh, it's better than no box. Mm -hmm. My cat up there, Pearl, is demonstrating that even uh, an acid box is better. That keeps dust out. It keeps light out. It's better than nothing. The, the picture on the far left there is from my collection. Um, we've got 350 wood blocks, and I ran out of archival boxes, but I couldn't have them just sitting out in the air, so I put them in plastic. Yes, this is a scary thing to do, um, but it's temporary, right? So a little bit of time is going to be okay, but they're not out on a shelf getting dust and grime um, on top of them. And the middle picture, there is a closet at the museum or in this historic house um, that was just full of junk stuff. Was not junk, objects. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it's junk. <laughs> this is a safe space. <laughs> Don't tell my director. So true. So, you know, but putting them in boxes, one, this allows you to be a little bit more organized. You're already going to be able to find things better. And again, they are more protected from pests and the other, you know, agents of deterioration actually in a box. Um, I also moved an entire collection one summer using Blue Apron boxes. So use what you have available Pearl's to you. Pearl's onto it. She yeah. knows about those Blue Apron yeah. boxes. They're sturdy. Um. <laughs> hey, you just got our next Thank topic. You. Um, great, great. So yes, that's our next topic. Exactly. You don't have to feel, I guess the Hollinger people already left, so that's good. Um, you don't have to feel tied to buying things from Gaylord or Hollinger you or can. Talis. You can if you have money. That might be in the better kind of stuff mm -hmm. that we were talked about. But if you're, you don't have to buy things from that. Um, you do sort of want to, if you are trying to think sort of archivally, you might want to look at what how things are made, what words you want to look for, not the word archival. That doesn't mean anything. You want to look for the words acid-free, lignin-free, um, buffered if if it's a you know paper material, unbuffered if not. So those are some of the words. But but feel free to explore other areas of mm -hmm. purchase. <laughs> I will also say it's really easy to make your Amazon Prime account tied in with your museum's account, so you get the nonprofit tax exemption. Really easy to do. And it gives a little bit of money to your organization. So yeah, yeah. Amazon Smile or whatever. Amazon Smile. Yeah. Yes, yeah. so get set up on Amazon Smile. Um, you can also make, I've seen people do, I'm big into disaster preparedness as well, so you can make Amazon wish lists as well mm -hmm. ahead of time. We're getting a little off topic here, but good thing to look into if you're going to do that. You can make a wish list ahead of time if you had a disaster, what were the supplies you would need, and that's a kind of quick way to help manage donations. Um, and then... So I had to describe what crib means. Um, you know when you have the, your cheat sheet that you take into an exam? Those are called crib sheets. <laughs> so, um, you know, learn from what other people do. These are two really good resources, the stash resource and the reorg. Reorg is a fabulous program that was started by ICROM and UNESCO that is for, uh, to help you small institutions reorganize their collections and on connecting to collections care we just did a course on reorg a six webinar course and 
I'm going to open that for, not for badges, not for feedback, but it will be open the end of next week, and you can take it for $89. But it's, it's really fabulous. So, um, and I'm not just telling you that because I, I look after it, but because it really is. So um, check that out on our website. And um, <laughs> this is one of the reorg things where they built a whole thing to um, enclose this doll and its parts. And um, they, they're amazing. So check them out. They have a lot of, if you have like a weird thing that you're not really sure how mm -hmm. to store, somebody there has done it. And you can look at how they use things like pegboards and right. various other types of pegboards. Yeah. Um, hang things from the ceiling. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're, and if you have a good idea, you can put it in there too. Mm -hmm. So you can help everybody. Okay, so we took our five minutes. Now it's your five minutes. Yeah. What are some of your either housing and enclosure tips, or what are some questions you might have? Yeah. I work in the estate lighting interesting questions, right? And working for a company that contracted to inventory the lighting collection. Uh huh. So you're saying basically you don't want to keep dragging in extra things. Right. Wrapping things to pallets mm -hmm. is something you only, well, it's only you can choose the brand of lighting. Mm. That's correct. Yeah. Onto the palette, and then um, just regular plastic morning wrapping kits. Mm -hmm. They just roll it off of where it's pumping mm -hmm. and yep. strap it down. And if you have five or six or seven other pounds, we've had items that were sold for a thousand pounds. So you, there's no way you can possibly do something like that if it's movable and pallets are getting dirty. So the blue line pallets, which are the static way they pump on and on, and then you only strap into it your Colorado, and then you just cover it in plastic, strap plastic over it. And and there are different types of pallets. We did a webinar two years ago on on care of industrial objects, and there's a whole long thing in it about pallets, palletizing things, moving things with a forklift, and stuff like that. Was that was done by Clara Deck at, from the Ford, the Henry Ford, and it's fabulous. So take a look at that. Then did it the second year, the next year, where we 
we have the entire textile section, mostly. We box in three weeks 100 unbelievable boxes of textiles. Photographs, inventory, we label children, and we hire training technicians and volunteers, and students can use volunteers. So don't be afraid to, and then don't be afraid for volunteers. You can have deputies who train them for like a short amount of time, and put a call out. Uh, volunteer Match is a great way to do that. We got people who wanted to volunteer for a really short time, and so don't be afraid to That's exactly a whole part of the reorg method. And it works really well. And you can provide training, and people are happy to help. And especially a lot of times if it's not a big thing. And having swing space, which is what, when you close down the museum, you had a place to move this collection where you could work, swing space. <laughs> Anybody else? Yeah? Right. Yep. And then you throw a party. And you have a party. <laughs> then you have a party, <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, just a quick two. Maybe baby steps going back to Amy Kubelik. Um, 28 years ago, I went into curating my voucher for a Swiss Cross Club, and I wanted a card. <laughs> and I sent the documents to Amy and Dale in an office, not in the museum, in an office, um, for the document signed by David Washington. I opened a that were in storage. Um, they were in a Ciclon media cabinet. Again, worst thing you possibly do. And I went, I, I gotta get this all done right now. I gotta get it all done right now. We had two here military collection, the two central military collection in Humphrey, um, <coughs> internationally renowned. And we had several thousand 18th century documents, many of which were signed by George Washington. And I was like, how am I gonna do this? They took one step at a time. Yep. Step by step. Yeah. Uh, year before last, I bought my last cabinet that would fit in the hall. <laughs> Have a party. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. One box at a time. <laughs> the one that's revered. That's great. That it is possible. Great. So we hit our time. We're gonna. This next topic though is really related. So I think we're segueing yeah. really well. Um, great job, guys. Um, so we're gonna talk about sort of physical space and arrangement. Laura got our time going, so we're ready. <laughs> Ten minutes on physical um, arrangement and kind of furniture. 
So we already been talking about reorg. This really, I think, is is one of the best methodologies, and it sounds like we have people who have done it in here. Rachel over there can can not tell you done. more. Oh, not done. <laughs> oh, okay. No, no, no. You're, never, you're never done. You're never done. It's never done. Um, know but that. it's a really awesome resource. If you haven't checked it out, it's great for enclosures, and it's really great for kind of spatial. <laughs> reasoning and the workbook planning. is fabulous and it's all there and the uh, it's reorg.org i think it's uh, part of unesco there's a big workbook there are worksheets there's all kinds of stuff and how much does it cost it's it's free. They, all that it's stuff all is that's free. free so if you want to take our class it's all the reorg people it's um but uh, simon lambert from canada um uh Oh, I can't Other think people. of yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Is, is someone from Belgium, is someone from Italy, uh, people from the U.S., and they go through step by step how you do the, how you make all your charts and all that stuff. It's really, really good. So, yes. And while yeah. you're doing that, you're probably going to want to pull out your floor plans. Look at those things. And people, I I can't tell you how many sites they go visit and ask if they have floor plans and. No, nothing. And this is a tool to help you plan, so use it. It's something you, you should already have for lots of other reasons. Emergency planning being the, the least of them, right? So so use use your floor plans if you got them. Yeah, because the floor plan will actually help you sort out uh, places that you could carve out storage, for instance, um, if you move things around or, you know, it, it, it it's a very good way to, to learn about all the hidden things you never thought about because you walk through them all the time. Um, yeah. I was really concerned with my floor plan project. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, SketchUp's right. a great one. Right. Should write SketchUp down. Yeah. That's a free online thing as well. So that will help you. If you're not like a exhibit designer, you can you can, in theory, learn how to use SketchUp. I have not myself done it, but. You can get there. Within a couple of hours, you're, you're fiddling around with it, and it's a lot of fun. Yeah. And then you can play around in there, too, once you got these, and like rearrange some things, and, and then you it helps you to kind of visualize how these, these might, what it might actually but, look but like. But you can even use uh, a floor plan and cut out little things yeah. and move them around. You can around. do it less techy, that's true. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Yep. Right. Mm -hmm. um, I did that with, I moved into an apartment earlier this month and I did that, yes. <laughs> so lots of useful things there. And then um, historic houses, right? Ever so complicated. Um, I have adapted Wharton Asherick furniture to be collection storage spaces, spaces because I didn't have any option. Um, so what you're looking at on the two left pictures is a, a cabinet desk that he made in 1958 that had these nice flat drawers that um, the photo collection had been in there, just placed in there, and I had an intern come in and we, we put them in folders so they're buffered from the wood and um, we did what we could, but this is a great space um, for storing them. And then there's drawers underneath this sofa in one of the rooms um, that I was able to relocate things. And again, I had the opportunity for some archival boxes in that particular drawer. Other drawers, that's not the case. Um, so lining with 
tissue um, and just maybe things that would be a little more stable within with wood enclosures. Um, like I've you got can, some frame. You can items, line with mylar yep. and you can line with aluminum foil. Aluminum foil. Aluminum foil is a really good barrier. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. I have no. <laughs> I'm learning in this <laughs> session. Everybody's over there writing aluminum foil. Yeah, but I also no, will say. <laughs> yeah, with historic furniture, um, we have found in our collection that when drawers are not opened regularly, that is when you run into problems with them sticking. So using them as collection storage is actually helping your furniture because you will be occasionally opening it, making sure it still is, is getting mm -hmm. moved. So don't be afraid. Do it. Yeah, and you can get, um, there, there are foil-backed, I mean, uh, adhesive-backed foils that are archival. But you can use, uh, like, use industrial strength uh, <laughs> aluminum foil. It's a very good barrier. Uh, well, we have some 16th century wood furniture sitting in historic house. And one of the things we've done is to put wood over the exhibits and store it in there, uh, keeping it so that Christmas exhibits could sit in there. That's great. Yeah. Coming out Christmas exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, also, if you have really old wooden stuff, it's probably finished out gassing. Mm. So yeah, it's not true. like it's going to reach out and grab stuff. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it, yeah, but aging helps. <laughs> <laughs> and in other ways, it's kind of like just empty, wasted space. So you yeah, might as right. well use it, right? Right. Um, and then, of course, if, if you can, you always you do want to order things that you might need. Um, you don't necessarily, again, Reorg has lots of tips about you don't necessarily have to order the Delta cabinet, right? You can order other, go to Lowe's, Home Depot. Yeah, get metal shelves get and metal shelves. them to what you need. Um, and I do want to also say some you should definitely make friends with other organizations because sometimes when they do a you know reorganization project they have things that no longer fit for them. Um, the giant museum I worked at in Los Angeles often um, we give away they gave away um, their you know old to them. Uh huh. Mm. Sure. Cool. Nice. That's a good one. And. Okay, that's great. I'll write that down. <laughs> um, also, uh, cool. a lot of state museum or regional museum associations do um, furniture exchanges, or they they have buying clubs so that you can you can get things much cheaper. I know that M MPMA does that. I'm sure that other people do. So uh, I ha I work with a small museum that got all these beautiful textile storage closets for half of what they would have been. So uh, check out, you know, your local resources. Any other tips from storage rearranging? So for retail space, storage rearranging? Yes. Mm -hmm. 
So you get to be like your very best thrifter. You get yeah. to <laughs> um, use all those skills. <laughs> There's one in, in the back, yeah. line again <laughs> yeah and you win. can get org it doesn't have to be especially for something like that where it's just coming in temporarily and needs an organization like don't stress out about it being the most archival so it's you know yeah yeah no you don't need to that's perfect it's it's just to kind of keep things organized and that is that is a great way to to do that without kind of stressing yourself out about needing to have mm -hmm. the perfect powder-coated metal, um, you know, Well, and, and, you know, a lot of the contemporary plastics, you know, like sterilized boxes, they're polypropylene. So you could buy archival polypropylene boxes, but you could also buy sterilized boxes, wash them, and they're probably fine for a while, yeah. maybe even for a long time. Do you mind also starting selling archival boxes? Sorry, Yeah. So the thing that you want to be careful is a lot of people use archival as a marketing tool. So I if you get things like that, you can get a pH pencil from Gaylord. Just test them. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Next topic. <laughs> we're, we're the slave to the hedgehog timer. Um, <laughs> um, so the next topic we're going to discuss is environmental management, which I know can be really scary because it's data and numbers, right? But it doesn't have to be. Um, the first thing with this, we, you really have to know what your situation is before you s can do anything. So you, you just, you have to start monitoring in some way. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be a, you know, super fancy system or anything. Taking measurement, like handwriting measurements from a little, you know, uh, reading on the, on the wall, like your thermostat, is better than nothing. That's, yep. you're starting somewhere. I always recommend when I go into a, a new small museum, if they're not monitoring their their environment at all, that they get a, a cheap uh, digital thermometer that can also measure humidity. And I have them keep a chart for a year. Because, you know, when they say, oh, no, we need to have HVAC, um, maybe you don't. And maybe you have sections that are warmer than others. But if you don't have data, you can't. Y you have no place to start from, yeah? Are You'll probably have to talk to the manufacturer to see if that's fixable. But yeah. I will say the data loggers themselves are actually, I, people think all the time they're super expensive and out, they're not that no. expensive actually. And it might in that case be worth just buying new ones. And um, the ones with the digital data are like 30 bucks. Yeah, right. And they're now, um, 
they're now. Yeah. Right. And they're they're now uh, much more uh, accessible than they were. I used to. And more accurate. Yeah. And yeah. More accurate. Yeah. I used to give museums data loggers, and they would never use them. <laughs> <laughs> they're easier so to use now, yeah. And now they're much easier to so use. So we put a resource in um, the app, so you can yeah. uh, get so we, there's some more handouts and resources in there. So please check that out. But for this one in particular, on the CCAHA website, um, CCAHA.org/resources, um, we have a data logger quick comparison chart there, where it sort of lies out all the sort of the the cheaper data loggers and, and what each of them do. So it's a really good place to start if you don't know. And you would be surprised how inexpensive they are. And also, if you look in Connecting to Collections Care on our website in the archives, there's a, a search thing you can, for the, just for the webinars, you can look for environments. And we've done three or four webinars in the last 10 years on, on uh, monitoring environments, on data loggers, on wireless data loggers on all that stuff so that and those are free just take advantage i should also mention it's not just the temperature and humidity we're worried about here with no, the environment light we have other things to monitor too light is one and that's a, it does get a little more complicated laura has a good one for this um <laughs> one of my little cheats for monitoring light levels is take a piece of construction paper stick it underneath your object let the other part stick out and see how quickly that construction paper starts to fade if it goes pretty fast you know your light levels yeah. are probably not okay and then you can take small steps to address your lighting which can be really hard um, uv filters are great for your windows if you can afford that um, in the winter we're closed for two months so two months out of the year i can hang up blackout curtains um, yeah it's only two months out of the year but that's two months of no uv on my objects um, but give the construction paper thing a try um, but also integrated pest management um, the sticky traps that you see here are great they're also not terribly expensive and i believe home depot and lowe's has some as well um, but i reuse those if i'm doing ipm and there's no bugs in the trap i just change the data on it change the date and let it sit there for another month so you can get a little bit more time out of your uh, bug traps. Not really a best practice, but we don't care about best practices <laughs> anyway. So yeah. So what were you going to say? I was going to ask, uh, are there forms or something where we can record all this data on? Yeah, so you can even on. make forms of your own. Yeah. yeah. You know. Yeah. So the data loggers will, you know, they yeah. often have like a software involved. They'll, you know, spit out a chart and stuff for you. Um, so that comes in a lot of the data logger but, packages. But, but you could you make an Excel spreadsheet yeah. and and watch how things go. Yeah, um, I use Excel. Yeah. Google, Google Sheets, Sheets yeah. Right. Then everybody. Right. That's, that's how I did. That is actually what I did at LACMA, Los Angeles County. All the money in the world. I walked around with my Google Sheet and, and did, kept track of it that way. And also check out IPI. They have really good things on, on environments. And they're now uh, actually much more realistic than when they started. <laughs> when they started, they would say, well, you need to have this humidity and this temperature. And those of us from the West would say, well, what if you have a situation where the humidity goes from 10 to 100 and back again in a day? And they would say, that never happens. <laughs> <laughs> and we would say, monsoon, summer. <laughs> and, uh, and now they're, they're much more reasonable about that. And you, and you know, this whole idea that you have to have this temperature and you have to have this humidity, that's wrong. 
Um, all of that came about um, in the early 70s when Gary Thompson wrote his book. He was in London. <laughs> um, and so you really want to keep things sort of middling. You don't want to have big swings. You want to have you keep it stable, e even if it's stable. on like the high end of the best practice. As long as yeah. it's stable, that's that's better. Right. But of course, you don't know if you don't measure. Once you do measure, you might be able to do some things to help. Laura mentioned curtains, mm -hmm. which we have pictured here. Um, mm -hmm. If you know, if you don't have curtains, maybe you can even just throw like a, a sheet over yeah. your cases, um, right? Blocking light. And um, and uh, at. At, at night, in the summer, when the sun's up long before you get to work, you can put the shades <laughs> down until you get to work and open up mm -hmm. the doors, right? Um, it does a lot with temperature and humidity, also controlling yeah. light. Mm -hmm. um, you'd also be surprised what a fan can do. Yeah. Uh, like, right. really huge differences. You're not going to know if you're not monitoring, though, so that's important. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. You segued for us. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, it is it's $99 a month, it, but it, that's a six-month like during like when so we live in Chicago. Mm -hmm. We don't have pests in December, January, mm -hmm. February, you know. Hmm. So our contracts, you know, when we start actually seeing pests. But if I had an emergency like mice, mm -hmm. they're not charging me. Yeah, you want to avoid sprays. Yeah. yeah. But that's a great point. You don't have yeah. to be an expert in everything. I feel like we at small museums often feel like we have to be the expert in every single topic. And that's, you don't have to. You can get help when you need it. Um, you can have those pest contracts like that. You don't have to be able to identify every single bug. Um, and sometimes <laughs> it's cheaper to get someone mm -hmm. to help you than it is to do it yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing that you can do if you live someplace that it gets very hot in the summer, um, which is called solarizing, solar bagging, you can put things in a black plastic, wrap it in like you're describing, close it. You can put it in the car, in the sun, 
and if something is at four hours over 110, it'll kill stuff. So I just recommend that people go through twice, and you vacuum everything, and do it again. But that Only works. If your artifacts can handle being heated up like that, of course. But but yeah. even if they're going to be heated for a few hours, it's not going to make that big a difference. So that's one thing to do with textiles, mm -hmm. especially if you have moths. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Our, our timer went off. We gotta we gotta move on. <laughs> um, all right. Our next topic we're going to discuss is uh, policies and records management. I know every there's so many policies, right? It's super overwhelming. Where do we even start? Um, a big thing is uh, use assessments for an outside input for help. So there's lots of places you can go to kind of figure out where you should start. If you're just going to look at kind of a list of policies, you're going to get overwhelmed. So you got to prioritize which ones to do. Um, there's a lot of uh, assessment services out there. Some of these up here are like free. The that first one there, the Peace App, is one that you can just find online. It's totally free. Um, some Cap of these and map assessments. Mm -hmm. uh, you may have to put in a little bit of money, but they're they're ultimately free to have real experts come and spend a couple days in your collection giving you advice giving you a written report. Um, I have CCAHA's assessments up yeah. there. You don't just have to use CCHA. This of is the assessment You should come queen. see me. But <laughs> you don't have to see, do CCHA. There's other regional um, conservation centers that probably offer um, similar services. Your local field services office, mm -hmm. field services. If you're lucky um, enough to have one. If you're lucky enough to have one. Um, so that's a, uh, you can look on the ASLH website to see if you have a field service office in your area, the Field Services Alliance Affinity Group has them all listed there. So that you might have, and there's different funding for that. So um, some might be free, some might have a charge. Uh, another free assessment tool out there is that risk assessment from AIC, which is a really helpful thing. Mm -hmm. um, the, this New York State one that I have listed, you might have something similar in your state as well as kind of free, it's kind of along with that field service. Um, and some thing. state regional organization, state or regional Museum associations do assessments. Um, you just have to check with them. And what's so great about the assessment is they'll they'll help you to prioritize what makes the most sense for how to tackle this. Because maybe you don't have, you know, I'm trying to think of an example. Maybe you don't have a huge issue with um, pests. So maybe the pest one isn't the the first document you're going to work on. The first thing you need to work on is uh, your collections management policy. You know, they'll help you to kind of work through that. Well, I worked with a museum last year for a year, and they brought me in because they'd been told that they had a humidity problem and they needed to get a big HVAC system and all this stuff. And I was working with some architects, and we figured out in one day they did not have a humidity problem. They had a water problem. <laughs> and uh, they would have water coming in and inundating part of the collections. And then the humidity would go up. <laughs> uh, and so we got them to correct the water problem. Well, they're working on it still, but um, yeah. I mean, so, so a lot of times people will say, oh, no, we have this problem, but actually it's some other problem. Mm -hmm. And, and having, having outside yeah. eyes look at that can help. And I would also just put in, don't be afraid to do those assessments. Don't be intimidated. Yes, you probably already know what's wrong, and you don't want somebody to come in and be like, this is wrong, this is wrong. Like, 
they're there to help you. Um, they're not going to hold it against you. And like Samantha said, they're going to help you prioritize because sometimes that's the hardest part of just knowing where to start when you're overwhelmed by all of the issues well, in front of you. Usually when I do an assessment, I ask people when I go around interviewing the staff and the director and the board, I ask them what they think the problems are. And I also ask them if they're, I ask the staff if they're problems that they want the board to know about. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, but circling back to policies, if you you know are looking to some for somewhere to start, these are the five uh, core documents from AAM. So if you're looking for a place to start, this might be might make sense as a place to start. But I think this next point is actually more important. Um, just start writing things down. Begin somewhere. Right. Just begin. Mm -hmm. um, it might be that you Swiffer these three rooms every Tuesday. Write down that you do that and you have a housekeeping policy. Woo! <laughs> you know, like just start, just write it down. And it doesn't have to be this huge, laborious process. Just, you know, if you're doing something already, just write down what you're doing. You have a procedural document. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And if you have a, a set thing of how you open and close the museum, that so and so unlocks the door, that this is this. You don't have anyone taking home the keys to the museum, um, but you have a lockbox for the keys, and you make a you have a security document by writing down those procedures. You make a form, whoever does it signs it, and those are really important. So, what tips do you guys have about writing yeah. policies? Oh no one, they don't have policies. No one has yeah. a. <laughs> Right, a lot of uh, museum associations will have policies that you can, uh, in like a book. I think Texas did one, and so you can use other people's policies. AAM has a bunch of policies. Yeah. Too. yeah. Do please make sure to customize, though. I do yes, have to say right. that. <laughs> I was working with a site once, and when I was looking at their emergency plan, they sent me their emergency plan ahead of time. They had this, like, three pages detailing about how they were going to put things in boxes and carry them down the stairs if the elevator was out. I got there and there was no elevator. It was a <laughs> single floor institution, so they obviously had copy-pasted and that doesn't right. really help anyone. So I am all for using, but please customize. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. Great tip. Mm -hmm. Good one. Did you have a yeah? Oh, I was just gonna add. Um, I know that there was a section about B plan. I, I use B plan mm -hmm. um, as well. Um, that's really helpful um, for other organiz. I mean, like other departments. So, like for for my um, like the big operations department that oversees our department. Um, it's helpful for them to kind of understand, especially when I make trips. But make sure if you use D-Plan that you also customize it. Mm -hmm. I mean, Absolutely. I, 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 and, and right, and I've seen people just print it out so that 
Once I went into this one museum, they had all this stuff about paintings and also their hurricane plan, but they were in New Mexico. <laughs> and I said, you know, we usually don't have hurricanes here. We do have tornadoes sometimes, but not hurricanes. So, um, you know, that's, you, wa you want to, and they said, well, it was in deep plan. <laughs> I said, well, <laughs> but it's not here. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So you really have to um, be able to um, manipulate and kind of like adjust and mm -hmm. work on that, because if not, it's, it's overwhelming for yeah. Yeah, and it's a really valuable part of the, um, like, it's a good experience to write the plan to get, like, that's, like, mm -hmm. kind of having the plan, you know, it's like one of those things once you write down the note, you no longer need that written note because you remember. Absolutely. Kind of the same thing, yeah. right? So the process of going through it is a valuable thing. And practice. So. Yeah. You know, people don't want to practice emergency plans. They don't want to practice other kinds of plans. But then when the emergency happens and they never they practice, they don't, and what I find with people is they don't have an emergency plan until they've had an emergency. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So, you know, so practice. We have, we have like two seconds, so let's. <laughs> um, so, well, I'm working on a lot of this right now, so it's a master binder that's in my office, mm -hmm. yeah. but what I'm also doing is putting it in the cloud. Yes. And oh, getting yeah. access to my entire board, and additionally, the board will then have a copy. Every, this will be part of the onboarding if you get hit by a bus, right? Yeah, bad angel. Million dollars. That or that. Uh, that's great. Uh, you need to your someone else needs to be in the know, and it can't always be right. called to your director and even your staff. Everyone needs to be educated what the plan is, and everyone needs to be on board with that plan. Mm -hmm. um, so it'd be good to educate everyone across the board. Okay. All right. We, we have to move on from this one. We do have a little bit of time at the end, so if we didn't get to you, we will um, be able yeah. to maybe circle back to some hot topics. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't say I don't anymore. It's a bad juju. I yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I'm meet my millionaire husband. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right, professional development yeah. is our next one. So I know we're all here at the conference, so this might not be a huge barrier for a lot of our institutions, but maybe we're local to Philadelphia and we're able to come this year and we don't normally come, right? So um, we do want to talk about how to get the kind of professional development that you might need. Um, take advantage of things. Right. Connecting to collections here is free. So yeah. good. <laughs> we do, we do work, uh, webinars almost once a month, sometimes more. Uh, there are over 150 webinars online free. You can listen to them. And uh, so take advantage of that. We're there for that to help small museums. Mm -hmm. um, go to workshops. There's a lot available. Um, again, another plug for your local field services office if you have one. They do a lot of workshops. A lot of them are often free or very cheap. So, you know, check yeah. out what's out there. Don't think that it, it has to be expensive. You can find some, some right. good and stuff out there. Right, and there are a lot of people that do training for nonprofits that's mm -hmm. free. Take advantage of that. Take advantage of, of training to lobby your legislature. That's yeah. a good thing to do. I started Small Museum Pro in New Mexico, mm -hmm. and um, we did that by lobbying the legislature. 
and now ASLH has it. <laughs> I would also say sometimes even, I've heard a lot of people talking about Google and their frustrations with visitor services. Sometimes Google will even do free workshops in your area, so look right. out for those too. Right, and there are more and more people that have uh, online workshops so mm -hmm. uh, and webinars. You might also think about going in with um, organizations together. So if you are to having- To bring someone in. If you are having like a shared problem, um, to be talking to your friends maybe you guys all chip in together to to bring in an expert and do a, a mini workshop mm -hmm. for just the organizations that are around I, i've actually done a handful of those um uh, recently so that's a good way to kind of get the cost down yeah <laughs> um, and I would also say too that um, that last point, the budget, that's a super, super important. If you, like, it's not real until the money's there. Mm -hmm. and yeah. I Negotiate right. for yourself, yeah, on right. that. And it's 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 really important for small museums to uh, support professional development for their uh, workers and their volunteers. A lot of times they don't think of their volunteers, but that's really important um, because you can lift everybody up step by step. It'll make your volunteers a lot more yeah. heated excited to be your volunteer um, and you were as you were mentioning with your move that that you did um, you can use your volunteers a lot more if you train them right yeah. so yeah mm -hmm. I've had repeat volunteers come back for our annual shutdown they only volunteer with me once a year mm -hmm. it, 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 when I shut down they come when they come back they know what they're expected to do mm -hmm. it, it, it works out really well yeah so. and not only learn new things but apply them <laughs> You know, I, I've, I've worked with so many people who said, well, you know, we went to all these workshops. And I'll say, well, did you do any? Oh, no, we can't do that here. And that's not an answer. That's not an answer. So, you know, apply what you learn. It's really important. It's really, um, it's, it's, and you may not be able to apply exactly what people say, but you can apply, you can figure out how to do it where you are. Um, I also something I see a lot too is you can only afford to send one person to the conference to the workshop that's totally fine but that one person has to come back and teach everyone else how to right. do it so get right. the biggest bang for your buck out of that for sure yeah. right um, share what you've learned yep so what professional development things are you guys going to yeah mm -hmm. professional development does have to do with like politics yes A lot of list serves yeah. out there. So right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and even connecting to Collections Care has a, um, a a discussion group for people in small museums. You don't have to join AIC, um, and uh, 
people can post questions and they're young conservators who answer them and they have experts who back them up if your question is more than what they're used to and and I'm also there and moving them along <laughs> so um, but uh, that's that's really a good resource also Museum Junction is a resource yeah Yes. Yeah. I had an argument last year. Our director was like, well, you need to go to an archives conference. And I did. And it was because he actually knew how to archive. Well, I went to school. I already know. I don't have any all these more tips. So I was like, I know mm -hmm. how to archive. But this year, I, we advocated to come to a broader museum conference to bring museum archives. And there's been so much learning tool. So just how to use the archives in, in a broader way. Yeah. Um, so yeah, just make sure you pick your appropriate. No, that's a really good point. I often see, well, we're going to AM because we're a museum, but doesn't apply. That's a you know big museum kind of conference, right? And this might be more right. And if you go to a conference that has uh, the uh, the extent of the world like AM, which is not to knock AM, um, but there's thousands and thousands of people there. It, it can be kind of overwhelming, and it may not be appropriate for your situation. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I live in a really small town, and we have a small college there too. But they do professional development, everything from you know board development, yeah. uh, business mm -hmm. nonprofits, fundraising. So in a big college, you can do some of these resources. Yeah, that's a great tip. Take advantage yeah. of the the things that are around yeah. you. Yeah. I like that one. <laughs> yeah, we have a community branch of a community college that's five miles away, mm -hmm. and some big donor paid money for that foundation information network yeah. resource to be in that library, and th there's a librarian training. Yep. And how lucky are we? Yeah. If I had not gone to that one freebie seminar, I wouldn't know anything about it. Yeah, yeah. and a lot of the county library systems, yeah. at least in Pennsylvania, right. will have access to that same network. Right. And mm -hmm. grants. Yep. And, and local community foundations, um, which collect money from the community and give them out, they often have workshops in grant writing, uh, board development, things that might not be directly towards collections care, except we all know that in small museums, Everything is collections <laughs> care. <laughs> Gary, yeah. Uh, apart from going to conferences, and that's one thing, I have some grant money, so I use a little bit of it to disable a, a reference library. Ah, uh, yeah. Great idea. Yeah, circles back to what you were saying. A, a professional development doesn't have to be a conference. Mm -hmm. It can be a book, yeah. That's great. Yes, that's a good one too. Uh, if you're in Philadelphia area and you want to host any CCHA workshops, please let me know because um, we're always looking. So um, that is a good one too. All right, anything else? We, we beat the clock on this one, but that's okay because I think we might need a little more on the next one, so. <laughs> okay. Okay, so our next top, oh, oh. we were pretty close. Okay, so our next topic, grants and cold hard cash, right? This is what everybody needs. 
nobody right. has enough of, how can we kind of think about uh, managing the budgets we have and then also getting grants? So um, the first thing is make a budget. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you should know what your income is. You should know what your outflow is. And you should be realistic about it. I, I can't tell you the number of tiny museums that I've worked for that who say, well, we only have $300 a year, but they have a large volunteer staff. And I tell them, that is part of your income, is what they are volunteering. And y you can go online. There's a resource that will tell you how much volunteer hours are worth in your state. Mm -hmm. And when you apply for money, you should calculate that. How much time do people give you? Another, um, uh, oh, sorry, another yeah. tip with that is I know I work with small museums a lot of times. The board, the board member or the volunteer will just be like, well, we need these archival boxes. I'm just going to buy them and donate right. them to the museum. That's great. But mm -hmm. let's run it through our budget so that we have those numbers. So the board member buys the boxes. They're still buying the boxes, but they actually make a donation to the organization for $300 worth of boxes. And then it actually goes through the organization so you have those numbers. Mm -hmm. We spent this much money on boxes. It came in as a donation from our board member, but we still need those numbers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right, exactly. And if somebody is, is donating the building or the city owns the building and you're not paying rent, mm -hmm. you are paying rent and you should keep track of that. You should really be realistic about what your budget is because when you're applying for money, people want to know what that is. So have a line item for yeah. preservation for professional development. Mm -hmm. Even if your line item for preservation is $10, you've got, one. You've got a line item for preservation. Yeah. Funders are going to like that a lot more. And I would yeah. remind you that you are your own best advocate. Mm -hmm. um, so don't be afraid to approach your director. I've worked in institutions where the director just arbitrarily decided the preservation budget line. And it should be a conversation between the collection staff and the director or the person doing the budget um, mm -hmm. so that you can make sure you have access to what you need. Right. Restricted giving? Or? No, no, yeah. I'm thinking of like they want to see the final product. Oh, oh. And right. Like, yeah. I need X number of dollars to roll up 100 textiles, and this is what it would take, and these are the number of hours. And, and they don't want to fund that. <laughs> but I mean, like, there, yeah. there are people who, there, like, if you've talked to donors who, who are like, I have, I need $200 to do this, this, and this, and then at the end you get to tour yeah. what your money has done. Have a party. Mm -hmm. Have a party. <laughs> yeah. I will hop when you sell and then take one to all. <laughs> <laughs> you have a realistic budget you can also make a fundraising plan but you can't really do that without this comes from the first one so they mm -hmm. all they both sort of go hand in hand um, so you can do things like you were just saying about you know this is a good one to pull out to make into a separate fundraising thing um, you should also that's when I stole from Laura have a wish list of items yeah. that mm -hmm. you don't have money for right now but twice I have had my director come to me and say hey we've got a thousand dollars left over from this one grant do you, can you use it? And I'm like, yes, I can use it. The first time I wasn't ready, so I was like going through Gaylord's website, this could be useful, this could be useful. I was ready for the second one. I knew the supplies I wished I had, and then I just went and bought them. So I hope that happens to you. This is glorious. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I had an assistant director who had, uh, there was a project that had gotten a large grant. They hadn't spent all the money, 
And he said, oh, we'll just send it back because granting agencies like it if you don't spend all the money and you send it back. And it was mostly because he didn't want to work on the final budget for the final report. And I said, no, 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 no. <laughs> we are going to do this. And I did the budget. I mean, it was just because he was lazy. But no, <laughs> no. Gr if you send money back to a granting agency or a funder, they're not going to want to give you money again. Yeah. I was wondering about the theory. Um, the theory that you actually managed to help the store um, through their belief. And so if we, if we bought the bulk of your customers with some kind of a, the days you're there, I'm not paying your salary. They are. What do you want to buy? And he made like business transactions. Wow. Toothpaste and salt and everything. Uh -huh. I am not spending that money on your salary. They're paying me the days that you're there. It's a three days a week thing. So he, he helped his salary or keep his salary. Yeah, oh, that's cool. good. That's, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, here's an important thing to think about with the grants. Last year, before I started, we applied for a special projects grant. It would have been a great goodwill thing for the county, but it wouldn't have, it would have cost us money mm. because it was a matching thing, mm -hmm. and it would not have generated any income. So after all that work, the previous director spent writing it and submitting it, we got some money, and then we had to decline it because then the board made the decision mm -hmm. that this isn't going to benefit us. Yeah. Right. So that kind of goes into a little bit of, of looking at what appropriate grants are for, you, you segued for us, uh, what are appropriate grants? And there is a really great handout in the app, so please go download mm -hmm. that. Um, that has more information about a bunch of these different grant projects. Look at the matching. Um, those are small museums, so there's a lot of, of, of options out there. The preservation assistance grants are it's six to maybe ten thousand. I can't. It's like changing right now. Um, but you don't have to match those. It's just it's free money. Um, the Inspire grants from IMLS that are new. Those are you don't have to match those either at a certain to a certain amount. So definitely check that check those out. Um, see what you don't have to match and figure out what those projects are that could be funded by those. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and I was amazed that this was all free, all offered to the Denver Public Library, that they, they did all of that work, single time staff. Now granted, it's a large metropolitan area, but if you're close to a metropolitan area, there are chances that there are libraries doing this. And most state libraries will have the Foundation Center database, and you can call them up and and they're there to help you. Yeah, and there's um, a lot of, like, so for example, where I work, we have a director of development, and he will write your grant for you if it involves having some conservation treatment come through the, through our lab. So there might be other places that have sort of yeah those sort of deals, too, so ask. And one of the things that I want to question you about is that there are people that are willing to give out, you know, $100, $200 for some little project. if. It takes you more time to write for that money yeah. than it does to do to do the project. 
it, it's not worth it. You also have to look at what's required of the grant, too. Mm -hmm. so like a lot of the federal grants require a ton of like bookkeeping and writing. And mm -hmm. if you don't have time, if you don't have that, the capacity have the to capacity do that, to do it, mm -hmm. don't apply for that grant because it's gonna it's not gonna be worth it. So if there are smaller grants and smaller projects that, that do actually see a benefit that require less documentation and less um, like partnership, that's much better for you. You're gonna have the time to do it. Yeah. And and if if yeah. there's a And I know people that are, uh, that will say, oh yeah, wh we'll do this grant because then we'll do this project. And you have to say, is that a project that you need? Is that a project that you're willing to put time into? And so don't, or hire don't for? Or hire for, so don't, don't make up projects just because somebody has money for X. All right. So we, we're, we're good on time. We're doing really great. We have about five minutes here so to do any other sort of questions. So if we had to move on from a topic and missed you, so this yeah. is now your time. But so this now's is also your time. our, our contact info. And did everybody get a mechanical pencil? I think maybe they've all been given out. out. Yeah. Um, and you also have the blue sheet to, to please fill out yeah, before please you head fill out, those out here. I guess a thumbs up from the yeah. volunteer in the back. Um, <laughs> So yeah, any other, did we miss anything? I thought of a resource I wanted to make sure you all knew about when we were talking about environmental um, conditions. Something I learned about on a Connecting to Collections webinar is the dew point calculator um, that you can go in and plug in if you know what your information is, your temperature and humidity, and then it will tell you what the dew point is and tell you the effects on the different types of materials you have stored in that environment. Right. It's a lot of fun to just play with, um, but also really helpful as well. It's part of IPI, but it's you can go on our website, put in dew point calculator, and it'll come up. I see you back here. Uh huh. Yeah, absolutely. Right, and don't don't expect a grant writer to work on contingency. Yeah, I've had people do that. Like, well, you only get paid if you get if the grant. If they yeah. get the money, no, 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 you pay them. <laughs> I would also say you should hire from grant for policy writing too. Yeah, mm -hmm. right. But then the follow-up is that you have to make it yours. They have to read it. Right. Question too, though. Um, who in your doctoral program chairs the committee? I've feedback on that. I've actually gone to the last couple of years. Is that something you would do? There are companies that need to do that. And if you have dust spewing out and stuff like that, and an HVAC or heating cooling place can probably tell you that 
if you need it, they can check. You know, like people that have dryers, I don't have a dryer, but get all this lint in them and they catch fire. Uh, so that's that's worthwhile checking out, but you may not need it. But It should be part of your annual HVAC uh, maintenance. So mm -hmm. hopefully you have somebody coming in who knows something about HVAC systems to like check the system annually, and that could be a time you could ask them, hey, can you tell us what we have to clean this too? Um, that might be a time yeah. to do that. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, uh -huh. And as a small museum, you can go ask, too. Don't be afraid <laughs> right. to ask. Um, also on that point, you not only could you be, um, you know, kind of sharing resources in that way, but maybe you have two small organizations who um, can go in to buy supplies together. Together and get then get a cut rate. Yeah, a lower rate if yeah. you go in together. And also sometimes they'll give you stuff for free. Well, yeah. <laughs> Well, also, it's a good point about professional development. You can join your local muse museum organization, right? And maybe you'll get free access to um, online, you know, whatever their membership benefits are. And then you might get more benefits, like 10% off at Hollinger, whatever the, the deal is. So also, ask for demos. Yeah. Right. Right. Are there any other things? Yeah. I was going to say some more morale perspectives. This election, we're working on doing family planning. <laughs> I felt much better about my life and my job and not being able to be that advocate when I realized this is a triage operation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. That are full of bugs and like desiccated and corrupt or whatever. When I realized that this is not the end phase, this is the very beginning mm -hmm. phase, like morale wise, it's like, okay, thank God I'm not supposed to be doing this. I'm not well, remember those lists. You make a big list like this, you know, they're big post it lists. <laughs> you can put them on the wall, then when you do stuff, you cross it off. At, at Christmas time, I got a letter from one of the museums I used to work with. And they said, dear Susan, we finished everything on your list. Are you going to come back again? <laughs> it, but that was like 10 years later, right? Yeah, but yeah, so 10 years later. It took them a long time. <laughs> I will yeah. also say on the morale point, just talking to your peers, because most of us are all in the same boat. And yeah. we can kind of feel isolated, but they'll feel better 